0: Let's pray before we get started. God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to come here and gather and to worship you together. And we just pray, God, this morning that we'll have an encounter with you. We'll pray that as we read your word, that we'll listen to your voice, Lord, and we'll hear where you're calling us and hear where you're moving us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I will say this, as we get started this morning, I first, go ahead and turn it up, if you have your Bible, John 13. Y'all are much kinder than the 815 service. By this time, at 815, I was already being heckled, so that's good. I appreciate y'all, uh, y'all not heckling me. It's Richard Wendell, if y'all want to take that up with him for me, I'd appreciate it. Um, but again, it's a, it's a great opportunity uh, to, to come up here and talk. I don't do this very often. I love to get to speak when I get the opportunity, so I'm appreciative of that. Um, and we're going to look back. So last week we were at Easter Sunday. We looked at the resurrection. We're going to go back to the week before that in chapter, John chapter 13. Again, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and get, get that out and flip open to John chapter 13. But just to recap for a minute. So John chapter 13 takes place on Thursday before the crucifixion on Friday. Uh, we talked about it when David spoke a couple weeks ago on this. It was this time where Jesus is watching the feet of his disciples. Uh, They're sitting around the table, he's washing their feet, uh, and he's just showing his kindness, his love. We have that interaction between Jesus and Peter, where Peter says, wash all of me, and Jesus says, no, just your feet. Uh, Or first, he says, don't wash me at all, and then finally he kind of allows Jesus to do what he's going to do in this moment. And so... I want to kind of set the scene from there just for a few minutes. Imagine being at the table with 12 or 13 other people and somebody stands up and starts washing your feet, which will be awkward, right? It'll be a little bit different for us. And so then he tells we have this discussion where he talks about washing feet and serving one another and lying and 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 loving one another. And then that's kind of the climactic moment of the meal, I would hope. If I'm at a meal at your house and you start washing my feet, I'm probably leaving beforehand. But if you do something like that, I'm, we're stopping right there for a minute. That's kind of going to be the end of the intense moment. We're going to need some time to recoup. And that's what I think is happening with the disciples as we move in. First half, chapter, verses 1 through 17, we have kind of the mic drop moment of the meal. At least you would hope that would be the case where Jesus, who you know is the Messiah, washes their feet and has this encounter. And so you would think that the rest of the meal would become this low-key, not very intense moment. Instead, it's not, and there's tons of confusion. And I tell you all of this, so as we work through this passage, you'll see why some of the guys in the room may have missed exactly what Jesus was saying. They may have missed the interaction between Jesus and Judas, and we'll talk about all of that in just a few minutes. Let's go ahead and start reading uh, chapter 13, we're going to start at 17, just to give a little context. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So these first three verses here, a couple things are going on. First, Jesus is confirming his identity. He's telling them these things so that they will believe he is who he is. And then he's identifying his mission. One of you are going to betray me. It will be the next line that he says. But it's this idea he wants them to know who he is. And if you remember back when we talked about the theme of all of John, all of John's disciple is written in a way so that we will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And this is just confirmation of that again. That Jesus is who he says he is, and he's on mission. But as he's sharing these things, he's kind of, this is not an overt claim of betrayal. He'll do that in just a few minutes, but he references Psalm 41:9. And in Psalm 41.9, David is writing about one of his dear friends who had decided to betray him. And he talks about taking his bread and raising his heel against him. And that's a cultural reference that's that's really important in ancient Near Eastern culture, and even in Middle Eastern culture today, in any honor-shame culture for that matter. To take bread with someone, to eat bread with someone, what you're saying is you're either part of my family or... You are so close, we are so close that you are a permanent guest, a permanent member at my table. This is one of the highest honors you can give someone, to eat bread with them in this culture, to invite them, in this case, into the tent. What you're saying is, I love you, I want to honor you, and this position for you is permanent. And then the next statement, he says, but you've showed your heel to me. You've raised your heel to me. That's as equally as dishonorable as inviting someone into your tent to eat. In Middle Eastern culture, during this time period, it's considered shameful, disrespectful to show the bottom of your feet to someone. And so Jesus is comparing what Judas is going to do. What he's saying here, I loved you, I've placed you in a place of honor, yet you've done the ultimate insult and you've done these things to me. So he's referring to the betrayal at this point. And as he mentions this, he then goes into, it's kind of a, the verse is kind of oddly placed here. He goes into this, this um, conversation about sending. He refers to God sending him, and then Jesus is going to send his disciples. That's an important term for us for the rest of, of this morning. We're going to dive in to what it means to be a disciple in a few minutes. But that's the context of everything else that we see. It's a trusted friend in my home who decides to insult and betray me. Look at verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against him, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one who I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charged the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. So in these verses, what we're looking at is we're getting a window into the betrayal of Jesus. We're looking at what's going on in the room. And what we see is that Jesus, we see a a, a more of a human side of Jesus here for a few minutes. He says his heart is troubled. And really what that, that statement says is that he feels deep anguish. So it's not just kind of a nervous tension of, uh, I don't feel well, I don't, this doesn't feel right. It's this deep anguish. Probably something similar to um, where Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus where it says he wept. We see this emotional attachment and then he announces to all of them as clearly and as plainly as he's ever done that one of you are going to betray me. So you can imagine the uproar in the room for a minute. This, this picture here, you'll kind of see how the table is, is set up. So you can imagine Jesus is in the middle of this table and he makes this statement. So all these guys are, is it me? Is it me? And Peter decides he has to find out. So he, somehow he gives John some type of sign. So John, we know from the story here that is to the right of Jesus because he's going to lean back and whisper something into Jesus' ear. And where Peter is, we have no idea. And somehow he gives him a sign. In my mind, I imagine a lot of different things. I used to be a baseball coach, so I'm thinking he's over here giving him these things, you know, and, you know, doing his whole thing for his, giving his signal. And, and, G, and John responds to that and says, oh, that's what you want me to ask here. But understand, nobody else knew what was going on. Nobody else saw Peter give the nod or whatever the sign was to Jesus. Nobody there saw that. So John leans back, he asks this question, and Jesus tells him, it's the one who I dip the bread, who dips the bread, who, ah, excuse me, who I give the bread to. We have no idea. Any type of if we say we know where he's at, we're just guessing. But in my mind, the most the most obvious place we're gonna be would be to the left. Immediately to the left, which is a place of honor at this at the table, right? He's at this place of honor, and Jesus turns to him and hands him this piece of bread. And Judas takes the bread from him. I think it's this place of honor, but it's also placed in a spot where he can easily betray Jesus. He's behind his back making this statement. What I also see here, there's a lot of things here that we could dive into about Judas, on who prompted him to betray Jesus, when it, that was decided, how long ago, whether it was before or after or when it was. And that's a conversation for a different time, but this morning... What I see here is that Jesus offering Judas this piece of bread is Jesus' final act of love towards him. See, I believe, personally, that Judas had a choice in whether he was going to betray Jesus or not. I believe Jesus looks at him and he offers him this bread, and I think it's this act of love. He's saying, you don't have to do this. Here's the opportunity. Here's your choice. Do with this what you have to do. And Judas takes the opportunity. And the scripture says that Satan entered into him. And I don't think that there was this elaborate kind of demon coming in the room, uh, taking over Judas' body. I don't believe that's the case. What I believe happened here is that all that's necessary here, is for Judas to give Satan permission to enter. And I think that's what he does. By taking the bread, he says, Satan, enter me. And Jesus, in this moment, looks, sits as the judge, and he gives the verdict. At this point, Judas is guilty. There's no other option for this. He's taken the bread. He has decided to betray. And Jesus tells him. And so there's all type of things going on. There's tons of confusion. I don't know. Like The thing that I look at with this, if you see this table, obviously everybody else around the table has no idea. Maybe John does. I, I, I pray for my own sake that John didn't know. Because if I'm sitting where John is, if I'm John in this sense, and he says, the guy who dips after me, or who I give this bread to, I'm watching, if I see the guy, he's not leaving the room, right? Because I love Jesus, and I'm not going to let this guy go betray him, so we're going to have to have a conversation before he leaves the room here. So obviously John doesn't know, he can't communicate it to Peter, they're not really sure what's going on. Everybody is so worried about, is it me, is it me, that Judas slips out of the room at night, and they just assume he's going to do something else. Verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. I think Jesus, as he engages this part of the conversation, Judas has gone out of the room. It's just the 11 other disciples at this point. And I think that Jesus is, is softening the blow here. He calls them children. It's the only time he references his disciples as children. And he's calling them children because I think he's softening this situation. This is about to be tough for them in just a few short hours, everything for them is about to seem hopeless. And so he's calling them children. He's telling them, you have to love one another the way I've loved you. Hard times are coming, is what he's saying here, and you're not going to be able to do it on your own. You have to love one another the same way that I've loved you. It's the only way you're going to survive. And then Peter jumps in again, the same way he did with a foot washing. I, I, I resonate with Peter a lot. It's like, I keep wanting to jump into things God says no when I want to know why and when he says and he says tells me why I say, well why again and we have this ongoing dialogue where I continue wanting to do things and I'm acting in my flesh because I feel like it's a good idea and God's saying no it's not a good idea for you and I keep there's some irony in this Peter says I'll I'll, I'll lay down my life for you and Jesus is telling him, you know, you're going to deny me, but it's, it's also because it's the very thing that Jesus is about to do for Peter. See, Peter's sacrifice, if P- Peter were to lay down his life for Jesus, it's an insufficient sacrifice. It's not good enough. It's the same way for me sometimes when I feel like I want to sacrifice for the Lord. And He say, you don't have to, I already did that. Your sacrifice isn't enough. Your trust in me is all that I ask for. And so what I look for here is, is just this interaction, that Jesus giving this peace to his disciples. And it's been a tough passage up to this point, right? We've had this interaction. We've had betrayal confirmed. We've had denying happen. We know the denial is going to happen. So Jesus wraps up this discourse in, in verses fourteen, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go back and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also that also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. This is an important passage for me in my own personal walk with Jesus. Some of you, I've told my story a, a number of times, but I didn't become a Christian until I was twenty five years old, and about four weeks. Five weeks after becoming a Christian, I was kind of going through all the things. I was raised in a Christian home, but rejected all of that. And I was going through all the boxes of doing the things I'm supposed to do, right? Doing my quiet time, praying. And then I go to bed that night. And what I experienced that night is a full-on attack. The enemy starts attacking me from every position, every place possible. He starts rolling through my mind all the places where I had failed significantly, All the people's faces kind of popped in my head that I had hurt. All the things just kind of kept coming at me over and over and over again. And I started wrestling with this thing that night. And I fought and I fought and I fought and I was losing and losing. It didn't matter what I did myself. I could cover my eyes. I still saw the faces. I could cover my ears. I still heard the words. You're not good enough. You've done all these things. There's no way these things can be forgiven for you You're you're just going to have to wallow in this. And after about six or seven hours of wrestling with the enemy, this moment of brilliance happened for me. I opened my Bible. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, was the verse that I turned to. And it was immediate that all of those things just went Because I had become a Christian earlier at that point. And I trusted him to say, you're good enough for this. I trusted him to say, all of those things I took care of at the cross. And it was this first moment of experiencing real freedom. And that's significant because it's this call here that happens to call us into discipleship. He's having the same thing. He's doing the same thing for his disciples here. He's telling them to trust him because he's preparing a place for them. And I'd always misread that. Not misread. Maybe it's accurate. I don't know. But my thought was always, oh, he's going to heaven to prepare a prepare a place. And as I was reading this and praying about this, that's, I, that, didn't, that wasn't it. He's going to, a cro- to the cross to prepare a way. And that's why they can't follow him, because their sacrifice on the cross isn't good enough to provide a path. Jesus had to be the one to go to the cross. He's preparing a way for them to come and be with him through his death and resurrection. So the force of this entire verse is that the disciples have to put the same trust in Jesus that Jesus is putting in the Father. That's the whole point of that verse there. Trust God, trust also in me. As I was thinking about this, it was kind of difficult to look at takeaways, what can we do with this, and one of the things that really jumped out at me are the names that we call ourselves in relationship to God. A lot of the times we call ourselves children of God, we call ourselves brother, co-heir, all of those words, and all of them are right. All of them are correct. Every one of them are true. But I think one of the, word, one of the words that we tend to avoid is the word disciple. Because disciple means, when we say disciple, that means it costs you something. So being a disciple means I don't live the way I want to, I live the way this person tells me to, I follow him. Before I came on staff here, I told you I was a baseball coach, but I was also a basketball coach. And one of the things that I did as a basketball coach is I was a disciple of Pete Carrill. Now, if you all don't know who he is, he was the coach at Princeton University in the 90s, and he came up with this offensive strategy that was brilliant, and I loved it. And so I would go up and I would work his camps. I would sit right there. I would listen to him. I would watch him draw it up. I would go to other guys that coached under him to learn how they did things. And then I would come back to my team and I would teach them every single thing that I had learned. Every single day, drill after drill, was about learning this offense. And then we got to be the point where we were good enough at it that I was able to go to clinics in Georgia and across the southeast and teach other coaches how to run this offense And how to do this because it's an effective way to to be good at basketball. I was a disciple of him because one, what I learned, and I went and put it into practice, and third, I went and told other people about it. And the reason it was easy, the reason I could trust him was because we scored points. We won basketball games. We won things. And so we had this constant relationship there where I was constantly learning. But also, it was one of those things where you couldn't just do the Princeton offense for 10 minutes one day at practice, one day a week. It had to be hours a day, every single day, over and over again. And as a coach, it had to be your entire coaching philosophy and lifestyle. I think that's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. I think it's what it looks like to be in relationship and to be a disciple of Jesus. I think it's absolutely imperative that we live the way he lives. That we move the way he moves and we love the way he loves and we engage people the way he engages people. So what does it mean to be a disciple? It means getting rid of all the things that make me comfortable and live life like Jesus lived life. I think there are three ways to do this. The first way is to be a worshiper. John 4 23 and 24 talks about worshiping in spirit and truth. To be a worshiper, we're not talking about what we did for 30, someone who reflects back to Jesus his value and worth. When we worship him, what we're doing is is we're telling him he's worthy of what we're doing. We're reflecting all the things he's done for us back to him. And we're doing it in a way that it's exclusive. To be a true worshiper, we have to only worship him. And life for us is busy. And sometimes things, even good things, become idols that we set up in our lives. They become things that distract us. Not that we worship them, but they do distract the worship of what we're going. And also culture influences us. It's not culturally okay to say Jesus Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. I looked at an article this week as I was preparing this and thinking about this, and it was this weird statement Among evangelical Christians, that 25% of them believe that all religions can be true. And for me, if that's the case, then we're not living as a disciple of Jesus. Because Jesus tells us there's only one way it's through Him at the cross to be with Him eternally. And so, the first thing, like we said, being a disciple of Jesus is being a worshiper, the second is a servant. John 13, 5, Jesus washed feet. He tells them, because he's going away, love one another the way I have loved you. Do for others the way I have done for you. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I grew up in a southern Christian home. And we would come home from school some days, and my mom, we would say, I hate my teacher. My mom would stop us right there and say, we don't hate anybody. We love everybody. You can strongly dislike her. Anybody else ever heard that before? You can strongly dislike, but you cannot hate because we're good Christian people and we don't hate people. And I started thinking about that. I wonder how many relationships I have where I say I love them or I love you, But really, I strongly dislike that person. And in that interaction between them, when I have to interact with them, which one's coming through? Which one are they receiving? My guess is it's probably not the love part. And I don't see that in this passage. I see Jesus showing love to Judas. And if there's anybody in the room that he could strongly dislike, he fits the qualifications for that. And Jesus loved him anyway. And for us, it's not okay to say we love people. Unless we're acting on it. This is not a works-based thing I'm talking about here. But if people that you say or we say that we love don't know they're loved by us, then what use is it? See, Jesus said, love one another the way I have loved you. Engage one another. People that we love need to feel loved. And we have to show that love to them every opportunity that we get. And we have to move away from the strongly dislike into an act of service and be a servant for people. Because disciples of Jesus serve other people. Jesus served the man who was going to betray him. He served the man who was going to deny him. He served the men who deserted him at the foot of the cross and left him there to die alone. And he served them and he loved them regardless of that. The last one, be a witness. Acts 1.8 says, go to all the nations, make, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son, making disciples of men, Right? Nowhere does it say, go to the world and make professing Christians. Nowhere does it say, go to the world and have people pray a prayer. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. And so we have to recognize that as believers, as disciples of Jesus, we are sent people. David talks all the time about our sentness, about moving into being sent Wherever we are, we've been sent there, and so we have to treat people the way Jesus would treat people. God has sent us to these places to love people the way he's loved them. And we we go there because it's a responsibility of all Christians to share the good news. People know who we love by how we love, and we have to go out. I went to breakfast with Russell. Most of you all know Russell. He leads the ministry at Dwell. And we went to breakfast the other day, and the server comes up, and they bring the food out, and they set it on the table. And Russell just looks at the server and says, hey, I'm about to pray for this food. Do you have anything I can pray for? And the server kind of stepped back for a minute and goes, actually, yeah, I've got these couple things going on in my life. I'd love for you to pray for me. And then he walked away, and Russell prayed for our food and for that guy. Unassuming not in your face, nobody felt uncomfortable, which is okay if they do, but it didn't in this case. And he he just prayed for this guy because he realized in a moment that as a witness, he just shared God's love with them. I felt so convicted about it. I went to dinner, we went to dinner that night with my wife and my four kids and the server brings our food. I was like, hey, listen, I got to, I got to pray for our food. Can I pray for you? And my wife went, See, I think that as we engage people in those conversations, it's easy to recognize our sentness or recognize our opportunity to be witnesses because, as witnesses, as disciples, we are witnesses to the good news. We know what God has done in our lives, we know where Jesus has worked in our lives, and we got to share it. Evangelism nowadays, people say that word, everybody kind of cringes and gets nervous because it's not an acceptable term anymore. I disagree. Every opportunity that we have to share God's goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love, people need to hear that. And call it evangelism, call it whatever you want to call it, call it call it being a witness, call it having a conversation with a coworker. Is It's irrelevant what we call it. It's an opportunity to share God's love. And all of these things, all three of them, are dependent on one thing. And that's verse 14.1. Do we trust God? And do we trust Jesus? Do we trust that the life he's set for us, the life he's called us into, is better than the life that we desire? Do we trust that the life he, he wants us to live, mimicking him, imitating him, is better than the life that we set up for ourselves? And do we trust that even if we're rejected, he still loves us? It's a command. And so I want to encourage you this morning. If you're looking at your life, if you're looking at these things, you're like, I just don't trust God's goodness. I don't know what it is. I don't trust Him in this. I don't trust Him with my finances. I don't trust Him in my marriage. I don't trust Him in these places. I want to encourage you this morning to make today that first act of trust the same way it was for me 15 years ago. Today can be that first act of trust and say, I trust that living as a disciple of you is better than chasing the things that I'm chasing. It's not a salvation message. It's not a salvation, am I saved or am I not saved? That's not what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about, are we disciples or are we not disciples? Are we professing Christians or are we disciples of Jesus? And I want to encourage you to step into that. Step in and trust that he's good. We're going to take communion in just a few minutes. The way we take communion here at Stonebridge is you'll come row at a time, you'll tear off bread, you'll dip it in the cup. And make your way around. And we have gluten-free communion for those of you that need that. But as you come forward this morning. Take communion as an act of trust. That God loves you, first of all. And that he wants to wants you to step into this calling of discipleship. There's going to be ministry teams on both sides. And on communion Sundays we we step into the fact that on this side of the crucifixion that Jesus death burial and resurrection one walking with anything physically we want to let these teams pray for you to pray that you'll be healed this morning we also want to pray for healing in relationship with him if there's places where you tr- don't trust him we want to encourage you to step there and confess that this morning and pray that he will that he will heal those areas as well so, ministry teams, if you'll come on up, if you're serving communion, you'll come up. Johnny Kate, if y'all will come up, everybody's going to be up here, come up. I want to encourage you this morning again, you take this first step of trust. It may not be the first step, it may be the 10th. You may have been trusting the Lord forever, and that's okay too. reaffirm. See, that's not just okay, that's great. Reaffirm that this morning that you continue to trust him. Use communion as a symbol of your trust in Jesus. I'm going to say a brief prayer and then Kim will release you a row at a time. Again, please, please, if you need prayer, go see these guys in the corners. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that we can love You and we thank You, God, that You loved us. And we pray, God, that we're able to trust You the way Jesus trusted You to to death on the cross. We pray that we're able to trust all those things. We pray that You'll heal any of those things in our hearts that prevent us from trusting that You're good. We pray that You'll heal any of those things in our lives that distract us, that You'll focus us towards You, God. God, we pray this morning, that you'll reveal to us that a life lived for you as a disciple is good. Life that we can dream of. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll come in this time, that you will fill us again, that you will move in our hearts, that we we'll will respond to you in a, way, in a new way, God, and we will recognize the areas where We may miss the mark as a disciple and that you'll highlight those for us. And we can pray that you'll move in those places. God, we pray for your healing touch this morning as we take communion. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.